0: Psalm 18, we read these words, As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our solid rock, who is the foundation of the church. And, Father, we come to you not because we are worthy, but because you have granted to us worthiness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By faith, we have been brought into your kingdom, into your church. Lord, I pray that you will put your hand upon us here today. You have promised that where two or three are gathered in in your name, there you are in the midst. We know you are here this morning. Lord, may our ears be attuned to what your Spirit is saying to us today. And Father, I pray that you will be glorified by our attitude and and by our commitment and by our worship. Father, I pray that as the word is proclaimed around this nation today and around the world, that you will bring many into your kingdom. Father, I do pray for our new president, the new vice president, the new administration, for the Congress, Lord, that you will cause righteousness to spring up in this nation. Father, that you will Quail, quell the voices of opposition, at least in terms of any serious violence or anything that could hinder the work that needs to be done. We pray that Congress will be a cooperative body with whatever is good and whatever is of you. And Father, we pray that you will keep our leaders fo- faced in the direction that you would have them to be. Father, we pray it's the you. fountainhead that you've called it to be, <coughs> to proclaiming the word around the world. Thank you for hearing us and for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. First Samuel, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. And thus... I will make it a reproach on all Israel. And the leaders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to uh, Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. And he numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were three hundred thousand, the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And it happened the next morning that Saul put the people in three companies and they came out into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came about that those who survived were scattered and that no two of them were left together. Well, we have seen, and I pointed this out um, last week, that the attack is on this town right here, Jabesh Gilead. It's on the eastern slope of the escarpment that goes up out of the uh, Jordan Valley. Remember, uh, this, this, this um, is part of uh, the, the greatest rift valley in the world on the surface of land. There are, there are rift valleys below the sea which are greater. But the San Andreas Fault is a pretty puny fault compared to this one here, which begins in Lebanon and runs all the way down to the mouth of the Zambezi River in Africa. It goes right down through the Red Sea, cuts through the Ethiopian highlands, goes down through both sides of Lake Victoria, uh, lakes uh, Tanganyika and Malawi are in that same rift valley just as the, Jordan, the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are here. Uh, so it's, it's quite a crack in the ground, you might say. And right here, you're probably about 750 feet or so below sea level in, at, the, at the river. So you're coming down from the highlands into the valley then up partway up the escarpment on the other side to the city of Jabesh. The ammonites I pointed out to you last time lived out over here and had some territory that the Israelites had taken away from them when they first conquered the Transjordanian area. And so the ammonites are very, you know, upset at the land they had lost, but the main reason for their attack is because Israel is appearing very weak. Israel seems to be uh, like the fatted cow, as far as they're concerned, and they're ready to move in and take what they can. And so they've moved against the city of Jabesh Gilead. Now, when events like this transpire, I I can't help but believe that God is in this, in either an active role or in an allowing role. In this particular case, I think that uh, he is at least allowing the enemy to attack Jabesh Gilead because this will be the opportunity for Saul, if you will, to earn his spurs to kind of prove himself as God's man in this particular situation. The Ammonites, of course, are a pagan people. They're related to the Israelites, as I noted to you last time. They're being the descendants of Lot through the incest that he uh, carried out with his uh, second daughter. Saul, I think I've I've tried to note this to you before. Uh, Saul was not a natural born leader. Saul was a man who, even though he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else uh, in Israel apparently, he was not a man who was out in the forefront leading Israel at any particular time. He had never even been considered, for example, to be a shofat, at least as far as humans were concerned. Of course, the shofat was always chosen by God Himself. But the Spirit of God now comes upon him. And whatever leadership abilities that might have been latent inside him are drawn out or simply God's spirit within him gives him a sense of leadership here. And he begins to exhibit some leadership qualities at at this point in time. We're told that he burned with anger at what he heard here. Verse 6 of the passage, And the spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Notice the anger is after the spirit of God came upon him. This is godly anger. This is the wrath of God coming through him towards these pagan peoples who have dared to assault the people of God. Verses 6 and 7 of this passage give us, I think, great insight into the imminence of God. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, the imminence of God, the fact that he is here, God with us. Emmanuel is an example of the imminence of God. He's not only transcended, he's not only out there beyond the uh, the last of the crystalline spheres as, as Aristotle would have it, but, but he's here, right here amongst us even this morning. Did God really care about Israel? I mean, Israel's rejected him. Israel said, we don't want you to be king, we want a human king. God could have easily been offended and, and said, forget it then, I'll go pick somebody else. I don't need you guys anymore. But did God really care about Israel? seems that he does. What will his role then be in the defense of Israel? Well, even though Israel had acted very rebelliously, which was not a new thing for them, nor is it for us, God still loved and claimed His people. And you know, that's a a powerful testimony of the grace and mercy of God. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of the fact that we can be on our knees in in, in intense prayer with God one hour and an hour later we can be doing something or thinking something or saying something that, that grieves His spirit, God's mercy is there. And He's always calling us to Himself. So he still claimed his people. It was God himself who energizes the Israelites here in their own defense, under the direction of this God-chosen king, who up to this moment hadn't done anything kingly yet. In his strength alone, Saul's strength alone, he was in a real dilemma. If he had been only in his strength, if we didn't have that statement that the Spirit of God came mightily on him, Saul would have been in deep, well, water, I'll say. And because he was king, he was supposed to defend the land. And how can you defend the land? You've had no experience. You have no army. You have no confidence. How do you do it? Well, God's Spirit came upon him and changed all that. God would change his his, his, and he still had no experience, okay? That, that wouldn't be changed until the actual event took place. But God gave him confidence, and as we'll see, God will give him an army. It's very important, I think, that when we read these passages of Scripture, no matter how bloody they may seem and no matter how senseless sometimes they may seem, that we see behind this is a spiritual war going on. It isn't just a physical war. None of these battles is just a physical war. There's always a spiritual war going behind it which is fueling this, this physical manifestation, whatever it might be. God's people were facing abject humiliation at the hands of pagan peoples known as the Ammonites. Satan inspired people. So the wrath of God flowed into Saul against this evil that he perceived. And he took a yoke of oxen, and we hope that it was his own yoke of oxen, and he chopped them up in pieces. And he sent the pieces by messengers all throughout the tribes and the clans of Israel. Now, who were these messengers? Were they simply people of Jabesh Gilead? Or were these those people who, when he had been chosen by lot, had chosen to follow him and, and to come with him to his home. Maybe they were still there. We don't know what the time frame is in all of this here. Uh, but whatever it is, these messengers run throughout the land with this little, with little piece of beef, you know, all over the land, carrying this piece of the yoke of oxen. This is literally intended to be a message of intimidation. I have no bones about it. He's sending a, a piece of a oxen out of an ox out there, and he's saying. You guys come and help me, or this is what's going to happen to your ox. You know, he's not hiding this here. This is exactly what it is. And everyone will understand that. This would be like today, somebody coming and saying to uh, all the small farmers of the United States, you're going to have to join this movement or we're going to blow your tractors up. Well, you can't farm without a tractor. Uh, you can't, they couldn't farm without an oxen. And the oxen were as costly to them as a tractor is to a farmer today in terms of what they could afford. So this would have been a great loss to them. It's very interesting, as we read this passage, that when when Saul sent forth this message, he says, you must come with me and Samuel. (laughs) You've got to come with me and Samuel that we will deal with this crisis. He's using Samuel's name in this call of arms. Now, did he ask Samuel? Whether this was true, will you be going with me, Samuel? We don't know. It doesn't say in this this passage. But why is he doing this? I think he's doing it for the same reason that Barak said, I'll go forth to war, but only if you come with me, Deborah. I don't think maybe Saul was quite as fearful as Barak may have been, even though Barak was an experienced soldier and Saul is not. But I think what he's trying to do is validate his message because he's still an unknown factor in Israel. Oh, yes, they were there when he was chosen by Lot, and so they've seen him and they know who he is. But what do they know about this man? They didn't really know anything. He was he was a totally unknown person outside of his his hometown prior to this event, prior to his being chosen by Lot. and, and therefore I think he's Including Samuel's name, because everybody knows Samuel. Well, not everybody, maybe. <laughs> Saul didn't seem to before he met him the first time. But everybody, at least, apparently trusted in Saul, and uh, I mean, in Samuel, and probably feared him. Because you remember the passage we read earlier in Samuel, which said that when, when Samuel prophesied, the prophecies came true. He was a true prophet in Israel. Was he presuming upon Samuel here? Did he send the message then, send somebody over to Samuel and say, oh, by the way, I told him you're coming with me. Is that okay? Well, we don't know. But apparently it was godly inspiration, whatever the case might have been. Saul's effort is successful. And I think humanly he had to be gratified when he saw the army begin to gather. Because when he sent out this call to the tribes, he sent out the pieces of the butchered oxen all over the land and... Trying to intimidate the people that come, he didn't know if they would respond. They had really almost never, except in the case of of the concubine, which, unfortunately, the same similar thing happened. Uh, Israel almost never responded nationally to anything in these days. They were very tribal and regional people, and so he wasn't certain that they would respond. And he also wasn't certain how he would carry out his threat if they didn't. How would he go about butchering? oxen all over Israel if they didn't come. (laughs) Send out a a crew of butchers to to go around the countryside, would this be allowed to happen? Well, Saul was very far out on the limb. He was way out on a limb here when, when he issued this call. And had he been rebuffed at this point, the kingship, under Saul at least, would have been stillborn. There would have been no King Saul, really. If they, had been, if they had rebuffed him at this point. But to his great relief, the people responded. And a great army formed. It wasn't through Saul's effort that this happened. It wasn't because Saul had such a charismatic personality that everybody was attracted to him. Wasn't that at all that caused this army to form for these people to suddenly have confidence in their king and to pull together as a nation. It wasn't Saul's doing. Because at the end of verse 7, we read, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Just no question about it. They just all joined together and came out as one man to join the army. God placed in them the desire to support their rookie king and to defend their Transjordanian cousins, something they had rarely ever done after the conquest was complete and before this moment in time. It just dawned on me that maybe this is not a good application, but it just, I just thought about this. You know, maybe that's one of the problems with the church in America. We don't come out as one man against evil in this country. We don't come out as one in dealing with the issues of this land. We're, we're divided. Christians are divided. We have all these different denominational names and we attack each other. I mean, it's a foolish thing that we do, not only in America but around the world. And, of course, that's, that's satanic work. He's always dividing, 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 dividing. And, unfortunately, we allow these divisions to be relatively permanent. Whenever the right thing is done, whenever good triumphs, it is the result of godly influence, or it is the result of direct divine intervention. When good happens, God is always involved. Good does not happen without God somewhere in the equation. In Romans 3, Paul quotes from Psalm 14 when he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good, no, not one. That, that's pretty conclusive. Not a single one of us does good of our own will or strength. And the reason for that is, good is an attribute of God. Righteousness is an attribute of God. Therefore, whenever good occurs and righteousness occurs, it's because the attributes of God are being manifested. And those attributes are only manifested when the Spirit of God is at work. The Spirit of God is at work here. That, that is why, to me, it's true that... I mean, all of us know about famous people in America who, who don't have the time of day for God, but they go out and they raise money for uh, muscular dystrophy or, or blind children or something else. And I'm sure that they feel that that is doing some good whereby they earn merit with God, but that is not good in the biblical sense of the word. They're easing their consciences. It's almost always a selfish action. You read about these rock stars who use some of their money to help burn children. I think something like that was even in the newspaper. I didn't read the article, so I may be (laughs) saying something uh, off base there, but this does happen. That is not good from biblical perspective. That That is not a manifestation of an attribute of God. It earns those persons no merit. There is no treasury of merit. There's no place where good is all stored up and I can do something down here and receive some of that merit as a result. That's a false teaching. It has nothing to do with Scripture or truth. It's just a human invention. It's a rational thing. God's Spirit came upon Saul and upon the Israelites, and they were able to pursue what was righteous and what was good. The armies of Israel were told gathered at Bezek is a town right here in the uh, highlands, almost directly opposite Jabesh-Gilead there. They gathered there because that was the best point of departure for an attack upon Jabesh-Gilead where they could gather together unseen by the Ammonites. It's in the territory of Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh. Jabesh Gilead is located about 8 miles to the east of the Jordan, and Bezix located about 10 miles west of the Jordan. So there's about 18 air miles between the two towns where the army gathered. Now, the Israelites were so convinced that Yahweh was going to give them victory through their new king that they gathered with great enthusiasm, I think, And I think they gathered almost everybody who was capable of carrying a stick or throwing a stone. I I think we can't view this army as a mighty army uh, loaded with the kind of weapons that armies in those days were uh, loaded with because as we get a little bit further in the story of Samuel, we discover that in the day of Saul, the Philistines had a domination on iron. They controlled iron production so that Israel even had to go down to the Philistines to even sharpen uh, an axe. And we're told that when Saul went to battle with his son Jonathan leading the army, that only Saul and his son Jonathan had steel swords. Nobody else in the army of Israel did. Well that doesn't mean they didn't have bronze. They may have had some bronze tools and weapons. But bronze is uh, very secondary when faced against steel. It's not as effective and it's of course easily, more easily defeated. So this army that comes out, we can't view them as all men standing there like Roman legionnaires with body armor and shields and spears and swords and daggers and all the rest of it and helmets and the whole... I mean, these are a bunch of farmers and herdsmen coming out there with sticks and stones. That's just exactly what, what the, the Philistine Goliath said to David, you know, you come out with me in sticks and stones. Uh, against me. And, of course, he was standing there in full body armor with all the weapons of war looking at this little shepherd guy. Well, he wasn't little. He was a full-grown man. But looking at uh, David over there, he this is not a battle. It's like sending me into the ring against, I don't even know who the world champion is today. I don't pay much attention to that. But, you know, it would be, what, one second of the first round? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I could run fast enough to make it go a little, <laughs> little bit longer. <laughs> That's, I'm sure, the way they uh, viewed it. But an army of 300,000 is mustered. 300,000, including 30,000 from Judah, or maybe plus 30,000 from Judah. Here, either way, it's a big army. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of men. Probably everybody from late teens to you know, older was uh, involved in, this, in forming this particular army. Well, the fun part comes next. The messengers who originally had brought the appeal, who had gone through Israel saying, please, can you come and help us over here at Jabesh Gilead? We need somebody to warn off the Ammonites. Would you come? Well, these messengers gathered at Bezikdu to see what was happening, whether Saul's request had any uh, meaning. And so the messengers were then told, go back to Jabesh and tell him, help is coming. Help is on the way. The messengers went back, of course, with great joy in their hearts. Of course, they looked around at this group and thought, well, their numbers will overwhelm the Ammonites at least. But what is interesting is how the people at Jabesh Gilead reacted to all of this. Now, remember back when the um, Philistines were first faced by a, a, an army of Israel back in the early time of, uh, of uh, Samuel, that uh, the, the, the um, actually it was the days of Eli. And the ark was taken out of the tabernacle and taken to the battlefront there at Ebenezer, and they cheered. This big cheer went up when the ark came in, and of course the Philistines over there in their camp they heard the cheer and and they thought, whoa, what's going on? And and then of course they found out, and then they were a bit fearful. We told we are told, even though they won the battle the next day, they were still fearful. Well, this wasn't going to happen. When the messengers came into the city of Jabesh-Gilead, there was no big cheer sent up. They were just cool it, guys, cool it, keep it quiet. We don't want those guys out there to know that help is coming. They didn't want them to know help was coming because they didn't want them to be prepared because they were sitting out there totally self-confident. They probably had no scouts around their camp. They were just having a good time because they knew pretty soon they were going to get the city of Jabesh-Gilead and they were going to be able to mutilate this population of 10,000 people or whatever was inside the city of Jabesh-Gilead to keep the Ammonites even more off balance, they actually sent a message out to them and said, tomorrow at this time we will submit to you. Yeah, they lied. Well, m- maybe the message was written in such a way <laughs> that it wasn't a blatant lie, but the result was a lie, yes. the am- What's that? that? That's right. <laughs> that's right, they did come out to them the next day. So it wasn't a total lie, was it? But the meaning of it was, the meaning of it was, all right, they're implying no help is coming, so we'll come out and submit to your demands. That was the meaning that the Ammonites understood, but it worked, whatever the case may be. Now, Bezek and Jabesh Gilead are 18 miles apart by air. But by the time you, you, you follow the road that wanders around through the wadis down to the river, cross the river, and come up the other side to Jabesh Gilead, you're probably going to travel about 25 miles by, by ground, you know, following the road, wandering around and up and down. And you know, you're, you're descending uh, probably a little over 2,000 feet, you're ascending another 1,000 or 1,500 feet out of the canyon, so you've got a vertical drop there to deal with too. So this army couldn't exactly say, okay, well, in an hour we'll be there. No. They were going to have to march all the way from Bezik to Jabesh-Gilead, and that was going to take time. At first, when I was looking at this, I thought, well, they probably would have had to start out, uh, well, you know, 25 miles, an army marching. If they moved along at good clip, they could cover at least three miles an hour. That would be eight hours, roughly. Uh, Descending, ascending might modify that a little bit. So they probably would have had to have uh, left somewhere at 2 o'clock in the morning. But when you read on and and understand what it says there, it says in the passage that the attack occurred at the morning watch. This means that the attack occurred just after daybreak. So we're talking about an attack which occurred, let's just say 6 o'clock in the morning. They had to leave before midnight uh, in order to get there. They probably left about 9 o'clock at night and marched all night, which meant, of course, they had torches out there, which meant the enemy, if they had been alert, uh, could have uh, seen them coming. Or... But, but the Ammonites weren't prepared. The Ammonites were just totally uh, self-assured. Here we are camp. We're going to have this city tomorrow. The, I mean, Nahash allowed the messengers to go in the first place because he was so convinced that Israel would not raise an army, could not raise an army. I think God allowed them to be blinded in that sense, self-confident to the point of being blind. And so the army was not seen approaching. And I'm sure they doused their torches when, when it started to get light enough so they didn't need them anymore so that as it got closer, they would be less likely to be seen. We're told in the passage that Saul divided the army into three units. Does that mean 100,000 in each unit? Uh, probably not. I, I don't think the whole 300,000 probably got into this fray. Uh, that's a lot of people. If it really is 300,000, there are different understandings of the word that's translated 1,000. Some say it means military unit, which could be a smaller, smaller in number. Whatever the case is, we're talking about a lot, of, a lot of men here. And so I think probably only those that had the best of equipment, whatever it was, uh, the best sling throwers, the best stave whackers, Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Those that may have had some spears. Spears could be made, obviously, with even obsidian. Obsidian exists over there in Israel and probably bronze. And a bronze spear um, kills you about as dead as as an iron spear if you're gotten in a place with no armor on your body. Back in the days when the Spanish attacked uh, the Aztec Empire uh, in the early 16th century uh, in Mexico, the um, Spanish found that obsidian was a very <laughs> dangerous weapon. The Aztecs didn't have any metal except gold and silver. They had no iron, they had no bronze, but they did have obsidian. Obsidian, of course, is natural glass. It's a volcanic material, and it's, it, it fractures concoitally. When you, when you put pressure on it, it shears off in little flakes, and, and you can create a, a knife-like edge that's just as sharp as a razor. And they could easily have had weapons like that, which would have been, of course, very deadly. And the Spanish found them to be very harmful too whenever there wasn't metal directly over their body to protect them from it. Coming out a camp that is unprepared, people who are not prepared for battle, coming at them from three sides, I think probably dividing the army into three units, they probably came at three different sides attacking the Ammonite camp. The Ammonites were thrown in absolute total confusion. Just like when Gideon's teeny little army of only 300 attacked this huge army of Amalekites and Midianites, they were just thrown into utter confusion because of the night attack and, and the yelling and the screaming and not knowing where the enemy was come from or however many there even were. In this case, of course, the enemy was overwhelming. And you didn't have to be very far into the Ammonite camp before you did have weapons. You got their weapons. Yeah. In World War I, when Tsar uh, Nicholas sent his army against the Germans in East Prussia, he had a huge army. The Russians had the largest army in all Europe, but only one third of the men had any weapons. The first third went in, and the idea was the men behind, as soon as the guy in front of you fell, you picked up his weapon and you used it, which of course is not a very encouraging way (laughs) to use your army. But that's how the Russians functioned, and you can function that way. They didn't lose, they didn't win the battle, they didn't win the battle, of course, but nevertheless, there were other reasons for that. I think as the Israelites attacked the army, they, they started having weapons. They picked up the weapons that they found there and took off of the uh, of the Ammonites as they uh, killed them, and as the Ammonites fled, often leaving their weapons behind. And so now Israel did have some weapons. And I, you know I probably overstayed the case. The Israelites probably had a few weapons from other battles that they had fought and won also, here and there. But nevertheless, it was an overwhelming victory. The Ammonites were so overwhelmed that no Ammonite unit escaped intact. In fact, we're told that only individual Ammonites were able to escape. Because if you remember, as I read at the end of verse 11, so that no two of them were left together. Every fleeing Ammonite was totally by himself, running for dear life, you know, to escape the attack. Well, you know, that's total destruction of an army. That, that's total discomfiture of, of an enemy. Talk about being demoralized. Probably running like crazy and not carrying any weapons either. You know. I've never been in this kind of a situation, so I, I can't speak from experience. But to me, a soldier running from battle, uh, obviously it must be freaked out of, of, of any rational thinking because if you're running from battle and throw away your weapons, what, you, what hope do you have ever? If you throw your weapons away, of course, you think you run a little faster, and maybe that's true, but you could never defend yourself if you don't have your weapons left. And yeah, that happens all the time throughout history in battles. Hardened armies even have turned tail and run simply because they, they, they were absolutely convinced they were dead men, and so they fled and um, were dead men as a result. In this case, of course, you've got a little help from the Lord. Even though it doesn't state it it specifically, I, I think the fear of the Lord was put into the hearts of these Ammonites. Reading at verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall Samuel reign over us? Bring them in and we will put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished a deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Where were these words spoken? Probably at Jabesh possibly later at some other spot, but it seems that these words were spoken in in, in the heat of victory, in in the joy of having routed uh, an enemy army and uh, released a city from siege. If so, Samuel was there. Samuel was there because it is Samuel who says these words that we read in this passage. Wherever it was, in the flush of this great victory, under the leadership of Saul, There were those who said, let's get rid of those naysayers, those people who said, who is Saul that we should follow him, the ones that the Scripture calls the sons of Belial. They must have been there, or at least they knew who they were so they could be sought out and brought. Let's have revenge on those who didn't think Saul could lead Israel, didn't think Saul should be the king of Israel. The men were addressing Samuel when they said that. But it is not Samuel who responds to them. It is Saul who responds to them. And Saul says, well, first of all, Saul acknowledges the Lord. You notice what what he says there in verse 13. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished this deliverance in Israel. Saul is a wise man that moment. The Lord has given us deliverance. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't say, well yeah, we probably should kill him, but I'm going to be magnanimous in the midst of my great glorious victory. He doesn't say that. He says, the Lord has given Israel the victory. And Saul very wisely proclaims at that moment that no Israelite blood was going to be shed to sully this glorious day in in which the Lord has given us this victory. We will not do this. Now, I think, first of all, that if they were speaking about men who were there with them. These men had obeyed the call and they had come. And maybe they had even fought that day under Saul's leadership. I think it's very possible that many of the naysayers were converted at that moment. I don't necessarily mean spiritually converted, but at least converted to believing that Saul could provide the leadership. I mean, here's the proof of the pudding. His strategy worked and the enemy was totally, I mean, it was an overwhelming (laughs) victory. It's like a, a football game in which the score is 100 to nothing, which isn't the worst football score in history. 212 to nothing is the worst uh, that's ever occurred. And that was Georgia Tech over Podunk. <laughs> you probably have all read that. Podunk had defeated Georgia Tech in basketball. And they were so humiliated, they challenged him to football. Of course, Podunk didn't have a football team. So you had to put one together. And, you could imagine. The only thing that limited the score was the length of time on the clock. <laughs> that was like this. Overwhelming victory. The Ammonites were just destroyed. And Israel was absolutely victory, victorious at that moment. So what do we see here? We still see man, uh, Saul as a man of wisdom and of humility. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And I, I don't want to take away from really the application of all of this. Uh, because I think there's a really strong application in this that applies to us uh, today, to our society today, and I don't have enough time to develop it, so I think I'll stop there, and we'll pick up with it next week.